Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Adrian McKinty. Adrian is an Edgar Award-winning Irish novelist and critic. His new book, The Chain, is on sale this Tuesday, July 9th. That's tomorrow. The Chain was recently named Amazon Best Book of the Month for July, sold to Paramount Pictures, and has been receiving positive reviews across the board and praise from lots of established authors, including Stephen King himself, Tana French, Don Winslow, and many more. Adrian, there is a lot of crazy excitement around this book, The Chain. How are you feeling? I'm very excited about it myself. Um, It's a bit of a contrast from my last book, which came out to this um, black and empty silence of indifference. So (laughs) it's very cool to be on this side of the bubble. What goes through an author's mind into the launch of your book? How are you feeling? What's going through your mind? What can you do? Is there anything you can do other than wait? There's absolutely nothing you can do, really. I mean, you've, you've written the book. The last edit probably would have been, well, for me, in my case, it was about three months ago. It was the very, very last edit. And actually, I think I had an audiobook edit about a month ago. And so, you know, you've done all you can. You've put it out into the universe. And now it's the universe's turn to uh, either pat you in the back or stomp you in the face. Which one uh, do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I've had both. <laughs> I've, had, I've had the pat on the back and I've had the stomp in the face and the the pat on the back is definitely more pleasurable. Well, based on uh, you know what we mentioned earlier, which is some of the people behind this and the quotes that we're getting, Amazon, I don't think it's going to be a stomp in the face. I have a good feeling yeah, cer- this is going to go well. Certainly, I've had so many kind words from my fellow writers, and that is, I mean, that's really important to me because you, I mean, you're writing for yourself and you're writing for the public, and you're, but you're also writing for your peers. And for so many of the people that I respect and love, and in some cases worship, um, to say nice things about the book has been really wonderful for me. Before we dive into process and through the process, talk about the chain, tell us where you are in the world right now. I'm curious to know. I'm on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, on, up in the 90s, and we've been here for about a year and four months. Before that, we were in Australia for about 10 years. I just want to talk briefly about the chain. So chain on sale Tuesday, July 9th, as I mentioned, best book of the month for July, sold to Paramount Pictures, which I want to talk about. And obviously, quotes from various authors. I'm going to read a few of these quotes because I think they're really exciting. Stephen King, this nightmarish story is incredibly repulsive and original. You won't shake it for a long time. Uh, Tana French, McKinty is one of the most striking and most memorable crime voices to emerge on the scene in years. His plots tempt you to read at top speed, but don't give in this writing. Sharply observant, intelligent, and shot through with black humor should be savored. And of course, Don Winslow, a masterpiece. You've never read anything quite like The Chain, and you will never be able to forget it. Tell us about The Chain. Walk us through what it is, what makes it different than your other books. What should we be excited about? Well, it's a standalone thriller, and the, it's a high-concept thriller. It's one of those elevator pitch thrillers. And it's something that had been bubbling in my brain for about five or six years, and I did nothing with it. Well, actually, I started it as a short story about six years ago. 
And I wrote about five pages of short story. And like a lot of things, I put it in a drawer and never got around to completing the short story or developing it. And um, this is the concept. Uh, my protagonist is a, a woman called Rachel. She's in her mid-30s. She's driving into Boston, Massachusetts from Northern Mass. She's going into an appointment with her oncologist and she gets a call from a frantic woman who says, uh, Rachel, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but I've kidnapped your daughter, Kylie. And Rachel doesn't believe it, but then she gets a photograph on her camera phone. And then the woman says, you've got to understand this. I'm only doing this because my son has also been kidnapped by a completely different stranger. And for you to get Kylie back, you're going to have to pay the ransom, which is not a lot of money. But then you're going to have to kidnap a completely different stranger to take her place. And it's this chain of kidnappings, which has been going on for God knows how many years. And Rachel is first in disbelief. And then she goes through the six or seven pages of anger and grief. And finally, she believes it. And then she realizes that she's going to have to become, well, first of all, she's a victim. And then she's going to have to become an abductor and a criminal. And if she wants to see her daughter again, she's going to have to follow through and replace her daughter on the chain with someone else's child. And obviously it begs the question, how long has this been going on and what caused it and who's doing it and who's behind all yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and is, yeah. And in a short story, you never have to answer those questions. Gotcha. You just kind of, you could just do like seven or eight pages in the middle of it and you could just show this terrifying universe, a glimpse of it, and then, you know, pan out and, and leave the readers wondering what it, what's going to happen. But in a novel, you can't get away with that. You have to show the beginnings, the middlers, and end, and have, a, and have it all wrapped up in a standalone format. I mean, there's no sequel, there's no prequel. This is it. The whole story is here. You mentioned the short story. I would love to talk a little bit about that because we don't always talk about short stories sure. on, the, on the podcast. When you originally set out to write the short story, what goes through your mind and what's the, the benefit for an up-and-coming aspiring writer to approach a short story as opposed to a longer uh, novel? Me, I get a lot of ideas and most of them are terrible. Uh, <laughs> and you write them down in, in a notebook. Usually first thing in the morning, you've maybe just woken up or you get this idea late at night or, or focusing on something else. You write it in your notebook and then you read it the next day. And it's usually a horrible idea, or it's an idea that someone else has done, and a quick Google search proves that right. you know, someone else has, has taken it. Like a lot of the songs I wrote when I was a teenager, I <laughs> realized that I was subconsciously ripping off a lot of Fleetwood Mac songs from the early 70s, and I thought they were original compositions by me, but they weren't. <laughs> it, was, it was the melodies of Paul McCartney and John Lennon and, and Stevie Nicks. Um, that's a, that's a big problem with your ideas. And then some ideas, you look at them on the notebook and no one else has thought of it. And you, it's a good idea, but you know it can't be developed into a book. You know, you need 350 pages for a book, whereas you only need eight pages for a short story. And so you write it as a short story. And this happens to me a lot of times. And either that gets the juices flowing, and then you can develop it into maybe a novella or a novel. Or you can tighten the short story and make it itself uh, a work of art, like a really good short story that you're proud of. And then you can send that off to you know, a magazine and they'll pay you and they'll publish it. And if you're very lucky, you might get like shortlisted for one of the um, short story awards. And so everything is different. It's you actually have to do the work first and then see when it's done and what it's become. With the chain short story, um, it was none of those things. 
I wrote about seven or eight pages of it, and it was an incomplete short story. And I knew that I would have to spend quite a bit of time working it into a proper good short story, or I'd have to spend even more time developing as a novel. And I didn't do either of those things. It just seemed like a lot of work. And so I just left it in a drawer, along with a lot of other abandoned uh, projects. My drawer is full of about 15 or 16 <laughs> first chapters. Uh, and, you know, you go chapter one and then, and some people have read these first chapters and go, wow, what happens next? And you go, that's the problem. I have no clue <laughs> what happens next. I just have no idea. And that's why it's the first chapter just sitting in a drawer um, for years and years gathering dust. So I have two questions. The first one, are you implying that because they're in the drawer, you're actually handwriting these? Um, well, yeah, funnily enough, usually not. Usually <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll print, I'll print, them out. print them out. The chain story, story was handwritten because I was actually, I was not in the country. I was in Mexico City. And for, I can't remember, I think it was a problem with electricity and my computer had died and I couldn't get it to boot up properly. So I ended up writing, I hand wrote that one. The, the, the short story for the chain was about seven or eight pages on hotel stationery. And that was another reason why I, didn't want to touch it because I knew I'd have to retype all this. <laughs> you right. know, that just seemed like a lot of work <laughs> trying to decipher my horrible writing scroll and then retype it. So that I was maybe that's another reason why I just left it on those sheets for a long time. You know, some writer I mean James Elroy handwrites everything. Handwrites every single work. Like he never uses a typewriter ever. I mean he what he does is he handwrites the first draft and he sends it off he doesn't even have a computer. He sends it off to be typed. Wow. And then it comes back to him from a typist that he's used for years. And then he corrects the typed written notes in hand. And then he sends it off to her again. And then she types it up again. And then he does another correction. And that's how he writes his, his books. You know, he never uses a computer or a typewriter at all. It's all just done with a pen and, and ink. Whereas for me, that was pretty unusual I, I like to work on a, on a word processor and this short story you said you put it in a drawer cut two years later this story is a novel how did it resurface and how did you make the decision to say okay i want to make this a novel now well that's quite an interesting story I, i've been worked another reason i didn't work on it was because around that time this would have been about 2012 or 2013 I had just published the first book in, in what turned out to be a series of novels about this detective in Belfast called the Sean Duffy series. And the first book came out and it critically did quite well. And I got shortlisted for a couple of awards and did well. So the publishers said, look, Adrian, we'd like you to develop this into a trilogy. And those books were quite hard to write because they required a lot of research. And it basically took me about a year of solid work to write one of those. And so that was like two years down the line. So that's three years. And then when the third book came out, they said we would like one more trilogy. And so again, so that's like five years gone. And then when the final trilogy came out, then I had sort of space to breathe and think about what the next project was. And that's when um, the Story Factory and uh, Shane Salerno came into my life. And how did that specifically come about? Were you introduced by someone? How well, it was, did they it choose this? It was a really this? odd yeah. thing. Um, it, was, it was quite a dramatic story. We ended up, we were living in, in Melbourne, Australia. My income as a writer had diminished every single year I'd been living over there. And 
it was so weird because the books were getting great reviews, but because of the subject matter, you know, quite a heavy subject matter, the Troubles, Northern Ireland, the 1980s, nobody was really buying these books. And I was making less and less income. And then we ended up getting, for one reason or another, we ended up getting evicted from our house. And, and I felt terrible about this because my poor wife was working her ass off. You know, uh, She was a university lecturer and she was teaching all these extra courses and stuff. And uh, she was providing all the money for the family and I was providing almost nothing. And um, so I, I did this blog post saying, look, We've been evicted from our house, and things haven't really worked out the way I had expected them to with this whole writing business. So, look, I'm going to take a break from blogging for a while and a break from writing for a while. And if you don't hear from me, because I've been blogging every two or three days, you know, either a book review or TV review or something. And I said, like, I'm going to take a break from all this. If you don't hear from a while, there's no health issues. Nothing. Everything is completely fine. It's just that I'm going to go back and get full-time work, and I'm probably not going to write for a couple of years. So I put this blog post out into the ether, and I get a DM on Twitter from Don Winslow. And Don says, now, what's this thing on your blog about you know, not writing anymore? And I said, Don, you know, I explained the whole situation. He said, Is it, would it be okay if I called you up? And so Don calls me up, and he said, look, tell me everything that's going on. So I was telling him the whole story, and he said, would it be okay if I gave some of your books to uh, my agent, Jane Slayer of the Story Factory, would you be okay with that? And I said, sure, that, that's all right. And so he gave them off to, to Shane. And I guess Shane took about two or three weeks to read some books. And then Shane called me up in the middle of the night, and it was actually well after midnight in Australia. And he, you know, I was talking to him about what was going on. And it was an odd situation because I was kind of in a transition phase at that point. I'd kind of decided to move on and, and literally go and get a full-time job and you know, provide. I, I kind of didn't believe that writing was ever going to work for me. And so Shane's kind of trying to goad me into uh, <laughs> and into writing again. And I said, look, man, it's things haven't worked out. And then Shane sort of saying to me, look, Adrian, the problem isn't your books. He says, the problem is the way you've been marketed, the way you've right. been sold. Um, it's a little bit of the subject matter, but even that isn't the issue. It's the fact that you know, your books weren't available in Barnes and Noble. He says, you know, how do you expect to make an income if you couldn't get your book? Because I was coming out with a tiny imprint of a tiny imprint. And he said, how do you expect to make an income if you, you can't get your books in a bookstore? You know? And so he was sort of talking away to me and he said, look, do you have an American story in you um, that's been sort of lurking in the back of your mind for a while? And for whatever reason, I thought of that story of the chain. I just said, yeah, you know, funnily enough, there's this story that's been in the back of my head for about six years, but serial abductions and blah, blah. And I said, look, it's, it, it's really interesting to me because it's, it's kind of a question of like moral philosophy. How far would you go as right. an individual to protect someone in your family? And I've always found that really intriguing. Like, how do people become monsters? And what, what would drive an ordinary person to do things that normally they wouldn't do? And so Shame's going, well, what is actually the story? And then he, I pitched him the story, 30-second elevator pitch, and he said, well, how much of that have you written? And I said, nothing, not a word. And he said, what about the short story? I said, no, 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 the short, the short story is right deep from the middle of the book, and it's like handwritten. It's that, you know, that's, he says, so you haven't written the first chapter. And I go, no. And he says, well, write it now. 
And I go, mate, it's like 1.30 in the morning. So no, I want to read it. And, and Shane can be very, very persuasive. So like my wife's upstairs going, Adrian, what's going on down there? And I, I'm trying to explain, you know, I'm on the phone to an American agent at two in the morning starting a novel. Uh, so I, I wrote the first, well, Shane asked me to write the first chapter. And what's rare for me is to get in the flow state. No, normally I find writing quite difficult and with a lot of editing a lot of starts and stops but for some reason that night um i was really in a state of flow and i ended up writing about the first 30 pages um of the book which are the the first 30 pages virtually unedited of, of the actual novel um i don't think we changed anything at all maybe fixed a couple of commas and stuff in the book and then I sent them to Shane and, and uh, you know, exhausted, climbed into bed. <laughs> and at four o'clock in the morning, I'm explaining everything to the, to the missus. And then and she was saying, she haven't quit writing. What's happening? Have you got an agent? And, you know, we're trying to, and then at four o'clock, Shane calls me up and he says, Adrian, these are great. I love these 30 pages. All we need is another 350 exactly like this. <laughs> That's all. And I go, okay, man. And he said, what time is it there? And I said, it's four o'clock in the morning. And he goes, oh, man, you should get some sleep. You have a book to write. And he hangs up. And uh, <laughs> and that's how I kind of got into the story factory. And that was sort of the genesis of, of me beginning work on the chain. Wow. That's crazy. So for that first chapter, that was one night? Yeah, well, I think it, was, it ended up being like first, I think first two and a half chapters. Two and a half. It was like 30 pages of, oh, wow. basically the first 30 pages of the book, like however many words that is, I just wrote all in one night and we, well, and also wrote the title page and, and the quotes and we ended up changing nothing, the edit or the copy edit really or anything. It, it was just, yeah, that never happens to me, by the way. I mean, I know that's <laughs> how Lee Child who writes every book. He just writes every book seat of the pants style it all just flows and then he stops and then he just does it all again for me it's always been a, a much more laborious um, process but for that one night for some reason it, it all did just flow i almost want to name the theme of this uh, episode an agent calls you up in the middle of the night and demands that you write a novel as soon as humanly possible how do you do it um <laughs> which will lead us to the, the rest of the episode which is how the hell did you do it I assume when you wrote that first, you said two and a half chapters or so, did you first break down an outline, you know, for 300 no, pages? For that, oh, for wow. That first, for that first 30 pages, I didn't write anything. That's crazy. No, I, normally I do. Normally I'm, I'm very much a, a planner. Um, I write a, an outline at the very least on one or two pages. You know, again, I was talking to Elroy a month ago, and he told me that the outline for this storm, which is his latest book, was 450 pages and the the book itself is 520 pages so the outline was was almost as long as the book that's crazy that's not me um normally i would do like a four or five page outline and at the very least i would have act one act two act three you know act one is this act two is act you know act three is this maybe not all the individual chapters broken up and outlined but certainly you know a a fairly idea of what was going to for that night, I was so kind of angry and tired and pissed off at the way. And why was this guy calling me and what the hell was going on? And I just thought, I, I kind of thought I'll, I'll write it. And then when I get to like two paragraphs in and I can't do anything, I'm going to send it to him and say, see, 
this is, <laughs> this is no way to write a novel. And but funnily enough, before I kind of knew what happened, I was like on page twenty-eight, you know, and then and I got to like page thirty, and I thought this is a good place to stop, and I, and I just stopped and spellchecked and emailed it. I feel like Shane is almost like a spiritual guru here, just coming out of nowhere. You're at the bottom. You were at a point where you were reconsidering writing. He comes out of nowhere, tells you you need to do this. He's telling you to do things that you don't necessarily even thought you could. And then you're kind of coming out of it in such a positive way. It's an amazing yeah, it's thing. Like a, it's like a Rocky movie. I'm surprised <laughs> he didn't say, get outside and run up some right. steps at the nearest art museum. <laughs> I was going to yell, no, my knees can't take it. I, rugby for I guess you, you ran months. up the proverbial steps, though. Yes. You definitely did. So, yeah, yeah. It was a, it's, it's, a very, it's a very odd way to write a book, or at least to start a book. At like 3 o'clock in the morning, on the phone with some guy who you barely know. I mean, I, I, I knew he wasn't a bullshit artist because, like, he had Don Winslow had vouched for Right. But I hadn't Googled him. I had no idea who he was. I mean, uh, I, I had no clue. And all I had was like him in the phone, you know, kind of browbeating me into flip open my laptop and start writing. Up. It kind of just wore me down when I really just wanted to go to bed. <laughs> and, but he wore me down and I wrote a book. And then the funny thing was, he hangs up at the four o'clock in the morning with a little joke that you've booked right. And the wife says to me, you know, Adrian, you get some sleep. I'll take the kids to school the next day. And so she gets the kids out, and, and I wake up about 11 um, the next morning, and the house is completely empty. And the kids are gone, and Leah's gone, and they have deserted empty house. And I woke up out of bed, and I thought, my God, I had the weirdest dream last night. <laughs> Such a bizarre dream, like so vivid, like I'd written a book. Because I, <laughs> that's so unlike me. And uh, and I'm, I'm walking around the house, and I get, I get some coffee, and I make some toast, and I'm I like watched the TV and then I flipped up on my computer and there's like 11 emails from Shane Salerno. And I'm like, oh my God, it wasn't a dream. Wow. <laughs> it was real. And, uh, you know, just like horrified and excited at the same time. So Shane gets this first, you know, 30 pages or so. He reads it. He says, I love it. You have to write the, the novel. Did he give you a time limit on how much time you had? I mean, I assume if he wanted the first you know, a few chapters that night, how much time did you get for the rest of it? Did you have like a normal amount of time? Well, was that, it still kind that of a... weird because <laughs> a couple of months, after, you know, he said, you know, work in this book, you know, and I said, I'm a planner, man. I need a couple of months right. to plan. I said, yeah, yeah, take your time to plan. So I was sort of sort of planning. I didn't really write anything. And then the, Leah got offered a job in the US. She got off this job at Hunter College. And, and I said, look, <laughs> so I had to call up Shane and say, Hey man, look, I'm going to be taking a break from writing. We're moving our kids to New York. It's going to be a big transition from them. And, you know, we're going to have to sort of put family first for a while. And he's going, no, no, write the book. <laughs> you'll, you'll lose the momentum. Just write it, write it. So I said, look, I promise I won't lose the momentum. It's all going to be fine. And um, so then I, I wrote, you know, maybe another 20 or 30 pages or so. And then we moved to New York. Uh, but, I, you know, by this stage, I'd outlined it. And uh, when you've got their outline and you know where you're going and you've got a good 50 or 60 pages under your belt, then it's not too difficult to start. And so we moved to New York last, the January before last, and and I started writing it. And then it was about a six-month hole of writing and then editing. And then it was basically done by last summer. 
What's your favourite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what that six months looked like? Sure. Well, of writing. I knew, basically, um, I knew to the bottom of the second act how everything was going to go. I knew that there had to be, it was so, this book was incredibly logical and I thought, well, how, if you're an ordinary person, if you're not like, you know, Liam Neeson and Taken, or you're not like, because he's got that special set of skills, and Mel Gibson and Ransom's a millionaire. If you're an ordinary person in this situation, what are going to be the themes and elements and stuff that's going on in your life? And I, so that was actually kind of easy to do. And, you know, how does an ordinary person go about doing all this? And I thought to myself, how does an ordinary person go about kidnapping someone? Well, first of all, maybe you'd have to buy a gun and then maybe you'd have to have somewhere where you could hold them and then you'd have to search for a target. And so all that kind of stuff basically wrote itself because it was also logical. Like once you bought into the nightmarish upside down world logic of that universe, then it was actually kind of easy. That first hundred pages all just followed, you know, from one thing after another it was like start once you flip that dominoes and they all just fall together so the first hundred pages i knew was going to be no problem and then i knew that i was going to have to do some complications in the second act um, i had an idea of w- what i wanted the complications to be and then i knew the third act was going to have to be well one of the big touchstones for me was the story of demeter and persephone do you know that story from greek mythology demeter's daughter persephone is kidnapped and taken into the underworld by Hades. And Demeter has to literally go down into hell and rescue her daughter from the abyss. And I remember reading that, getting that story in primary school, and it stuck with me for about 40 years. And I knew that was going to be a big touchstone for the whole book, this idea of the mother who goes into hell to rescue her daughter from the darkness. But one of the things that I really liked about the Persephone story is that she gets Persephone back, but she's not back all the way. Um, that's it's why because Persephone is a fertility goddess, and it's why the Greeks believe they have winter and the fallow seasons is because Persephone is still part of her, still in hell. And I thought to myself, that is an interesting idea because if you watch Taken or if you watch Ransom, you know the, the the reunification is at the end of the story. It's the bottom of the third act, and you get the music and the credits, and that's the end. Silence of the Lambs, the reunification's at the end, um, and then it's the credits. And I thought, what if the reunification happens in the middle? And then, but the, the, the kidnapped girl, Kylie, Rachel's daughter, is not all the way back from the darkness. And then you'd have these psychological themes, and then you'd have all these, this other stuff that you can play with. So I knew that was always going to be like a midpoint of the book. And then the second half of the book was with dealing with what comes after, um, which I didn't think I'd seen dealt with in a lot of places before. So yeah, and then 
for the final act of the book, I knew I had to come up with, I knew I could not get away with having no solution to where the chain come from. And I flirted with the idea of, I actually wrote about 15, 16 pages of this. Of the, I flirted with the idea that the chain itself was this entity that had been going for hundreds of years. And I kind of loved that idea for a while. I thought maybe Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped by the chain. And maybe um, Julius Caesar was kidnapped by the chain And uh, when they had to pay. Maybe Richard the Lionheart kidnapped by the chain. Uh, all these people had been actually kidnapped by this entity which had come to America. And um, you know that Neil Gaiman novel, American Gods, where the all the European gods end up coming to America. And I thought maybe this kidnapping scheme, you know, uh, this entity had also come to the United States as well. And so I flirted with that for a while. And then that started getting so big and heavy, the, all the baggage from that. It was about 20 pages of unpacking that story. And I thought, no, 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 I'll, I'll make this a contemporary story. I'll make it something that's happened in the last six or seven years. And then that actually idea flowed a little bit better. And then I just abandoned the whole um, ancientness of the kidnapping scheme. But sometime when I, when I ever had your director's cut, I'm going to put those final chapters in as an appendix because they were right. quite fun. The, you know, Lindbergh coming back and the voice in the telephone saying, you're not the first and you will not be the last. Welcome to the chain or something. And Lindbergh getting all angry, stuff like that. But um, yeah, so that, that was basically once I had that structure, 60 pages under my belt, then it was just a task of getting a certain page number done every day and then reworking and re-editing it and then coming up with a with the first draft. And the first draft I knew was going to be long and I wanted I didn't want it to be long. Uh, and it turned out to be longer than I had anticipated it turned out to be about a hundred thousand words i knew i wanted a story that was about less than 90 maybe 88 or 89 and so then i spent about a month uh, maybe more maybe six weeks cutting i sent it to shane and he's very good instincts and i said look i, I feel this is long by about five thousand words <laughs> and he came back and he said your 5,000 words too short. It's in this wrong by about 10,000 words. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's painful to cut words, especially words that you've worked hard on, but it's also you feel that you're doing the right thing for the book. Um, so, um, so I ended up cutting about 10% of the novel um, and getting it down to about 80, 87,000 words. And then we submitted that to uh, the publishers. They, they took it. Tell us, as you were writing that, about the format, format of a novel. You can talk about how what a character says. You can also choose to summarize what a character says. How do you make those decisions? How do you flow between what you're volunteering versus what you're showing? And how do you keep it interesting? And Well, sometimes, you know, I, I like to show as much as possible. The old show don't tell stuff. But sometimes you have to tell. Sometimes you have to tell a little bit of backstory and stuff like that. And it's so much easier than in a novel. Like, I, I almost feel sorry for screenwriters when, like, one character says to the other, oh, what's that scar on your arm? He says, oh, yes, I got that scar from my three tours in Afghanistan when I had PTSD and was um, dismissed from the service. And they have to say this incredibly clunky thing <laughs> to give the, uh, the viewers the backstory of what had happened to them. Whereas, whereas a novelist, you can just say it. You can just say it, you know. Pete had blah, blah, blah. He'd done two tours in Vietnam. You know, you can just say it and you, you, don't, you don't have to carve that in there. So you can just, the flexibility of a novel is, is really powerful. 
and maybe a graphic novel is even more because you can just show it with with images as well. You can just do a flashback with images um, in a graphic novel. But in a novel, that, that gives you flexibility. I think the biggest decision for me, and I was horrified when I realized this, when I'd nearly finished the book, like the first draft, the long first draft, when it suddenly occurred to me that the book would work better in present tense rather than third person past. And I thought, oh, God, no, please do not make that be the case. Because there's no, there's no program that can change right. to present. You just have to go in and do every single word. And literally, I was near the end. I, I, I had like about 15 pages to go. I thought I was going to be done. And then I thought, no, no, I'll, I'll probably not work. as Because I'd written those first 30 pages in past tense. And then I went back and I wrote the first 10 pages in present. And they looked so much more immediate and better. And I thought, oh, God, I better sleep on this. And then I woke up the next morning and did a really cool assessment of them in past tense and them in present tense. And I realized to my utter horror and, and disgust that I was going to have to rewrite the whole oh book in, in present. Um, because it just worked better. And, and so that, that was the worst part of the whole process because I had to spend two weeks just changing every phrase to a present tense phrase. And uh, if you told me, you know, if I'd won the lottery during that week, this book would never have been finished. <laughs> I would just said, okay, forget it. I'm, I'm done. I, I, I'm so sick of this. I don't want to have to do this. But I eventually changed it all to present tense. And then that worked so much, so much better, just that immediacy of the present. Wow. And then as far as working with the editor, what did the notes look like? I assume there was an editor on the Story Factory side that you were going back and forth with, or mm -hmm. how did that work? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were 100% on the same page. I mean, I had confessed that I'd felt the book was too long. And then when Shane read it, he said, yeah, absolutely, it's too long. And then I, and then I said, "Well, how much too long?" And he thought it was about ten percent too long, which I could I, I couldn't get my head around. I didn't know how I was going to cut that. And then what Shane did to me was he really interrogated the the novel, and he gave me about twenty pages of notes. And you know, most of them were stuff that probably would have occurred to me, but one of them was a really great note. And he said, "One of them he said is this character really necessary?" And there was a character in the book, and I interrogated the character in my head, and I thought, no, absolutely not. I thought I'd put in this character, there's almost no comedy in the book, there's no humor. And I put in this character for kind of light relief and comedy, and he had a lot of good, funny lines. But I realized that this was a character just taking up a big amount of space and a big amount of time that was slowing down the whole story. And so that was quite a painful decision when I realized I was going to have to cut this character out of the book and lose almost all of its humor but ultimately it was vital for the, for the book so that was, that was the best note that i got and it really improved the book and then when it went to editing and the publisher they didn't want more cutting for pace they wanted me to add i think they were wanted me to add a few scenes about emotional consequences and that wasn't a lot of work that was like a couple of days work and then it went to um, copy editing and proofreading. And that's when I got some big surprises because, you know, I'm not an American. I, I didn't grow up here. And so 
that was kind of amazing to me. Some of the things that proofread, but this had to be an authentic American voice. This whole story had to be an American story in it. And the proofreader would say shocking things to me, which had never, I mean, I, I know the easy stuff. Like I know Americans don't have a bonnet on their car. Right. You guys have a hood and you don't have, um, I'm trying to think about another example. You don't have a windscreen, you have a windshield, right? And, and I know that stuff from the movies and stuff like But I remember the proofreader said to me, had circled this line in the manuscript, and she said, Americans don't have back gardens. And I said, what? I couldn't believe this. What the <laughs> hell is she talking about? I've seen thousands. When you're coming in from the airport from, you know, from JFK, you could pass thousands of back gardens in Queens. This woman's clearly mad. And, and I, so I called her up and I said, what are you talking about? Of course they have back gardens. And she said, no, 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 we call them backyards. Wow. And I went, oh, really? And I'd used the word back gardens throughout the whole book. And of course, you guys don't have you use backyards. Um, so there were lots of stuff like that. I thought I was pretty good because, you know, I read American crime novels, watch American TV. I thought I was pretty good with that stuff. But she really, you know, gave me a good lesson on what things Americans say and what Americans We Our biggest fight was over the word corridor. I'm convinced I've heard Americans say corridor. And she was going, no, nope, it's always hallway. And, uh, and I, was going, I swear to God. I was looking for examples, but all my examples were from Doctor Who, which is a British <laughs> And I was going, they're, they're running down the corridor. People know what that means. And, and then she's going, no, no, it's, it's hallway. Says, There's a TV show called Kids in the Hall. You know, it's not Kids in the Corridor. And uh, so I reluctantly had to change my corridors to hallways. And, but the, so that was a real education as well. You know, really having the first the cop editor and the proofreader interrogate the text and fix things which didn't seem right and things that surprised me even, even after all this time. Over. And then once you finish, how do you know that it's finished? Does someone give you the green light? Does Shane say, congrats, you are now Rocky. It's my turn to put you in the <laughs> ring, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's kind of never really finished. Um, it's like, you know, it's, I can't remember what, who said the quote is, but there's a famous quote, maybe it's WB Yeats, who said, you know, a poem is never finished, it's just abandoned. And and that's kind of the way you feel with a novel. It's never really finished. You, there's always a little bit of tinkering you can do. And um, like, for instance, they were recording the audiobook about four weeks ago. And they showed me the script for the audiobook, and you know, it was basically just the, the script for the novel and stuff like that. But there was a couple of things I just couldn't resist tinkering with, even though the book had gone to press and everything. And I said, you know, just tighten this here, tighten that. You know, there was just a few things that, uh, you know, you never really want to leave it alone. There's always stuff that you think to yourself, oh, they could be slightly better, or there might be a, a better word for that, or wow, instead of saying this in a paragraph, I could maybe have said this in three sentences. I always like economy. I, I, I love those writers where they, they have just such beautiful economy of prose. And there's, there's this famous story about Chekhov and he, that he wrote 23 versions of uh, one short story. And each version was only about 11 words shorter than the one before. But he considered that a triumph, that he'd managed to get 11 words out or six words out and he just got it shorter and shorter until he had, he'd got it the most economical version of the story and um so i i do admire that i like um 
economy. And, uh, and yeah, so it's never really, you can never really leave it alone. You're always kind of tinkering to the very end. And then the end, obviously, being the release tomorrow, your involvement, obviously, mm-hmm. you do a lot of these, I assume, talking to press and talking to podcasts, these kind of things. Tell us about the movie. I know that this was sold to Paramount. How did that come about? How does that tie into the release of the book and the promotion of the book? Well, um, Shane said to me, look, uh, we're going to try and sell the auction. And, you know, I had a book years ago. I had a book called Dead Oma B, which got optioned by Universal. And I had been quite involved in the process. They'd asked me to be involved in the process. This guy, the late Steve Golan, who founded Anonymous Content, who um, I worked with and who I thought was just this wonderful guy. He was really, he had a bit of a reputation of being a bit grumpy in Hollywood, I guess is the, is the way that nice way of putting it. But with me, he was the sweetest guy in the world. And, um, and he had asked me to be quite involved in this process. And I had been for about two or three years uh, of working on this dead I will maybe and trying to get it off as a film with Universal. And it hadn't worked out. And I got so involved in the process that I found myself to be really, really disappointed and actually quite depressed when it all kind of collapsed. And it all collapsed for really silly reasons because this John Lee Hancock had written this terrific script and, you know, they'd started casting people and it then just, you know, it all collapsed for one of those reasons. Things in Hollywood just don't work out for, you know, it just wasn't meant to be for the timing or an executive doesn't like it or whatever. And the whole thing collapsed. So I said to Shane, I told Shane this and I said, look, Shane, I do not want to be involved in this process at all. I I got so worked up and I flew out to LA so many times and I, I really don't want to be involved in any way unless there's a contract to sign. And can you take care of all of that? So I'd rather just be involved in, in writing and reading and you know, doing book reviews. And he said, yeah, I'll take care of it. So, so about three weeks ago, or maybe two and a half, I can't remember how long, about two and a half weeks ago, he calls me up one Friday morning. And he says, Adrian, remember you didn't want to be involved in anything until there's a contract to be signed? I said, yeah. And I says, you, you, you better get your wife into the room. And he says, we have something to discuss with her and you. And so we came into the room and he put me on speakerphone. He says, there's a contract to be signed. I said, what? And they said, Paramount want to option the book. And so I go, what? what? How did this happen? He said, you said you didn't want to be involved. And I go, that's true. And uh, and so then he told me all about Paramount, and they they read the book, and they really liked it, and they wanted to option it. And um, would I give my permission? And I said, of course, my God. And so then they optioned the – because Paramount. I mean, I, I really don't know a lot about studios, but Paramount, my God, that was the one I'd worshipped in the 80s because, you know, I'd grown up in the aftermath of The Godfather and Chinatown and The Conversation, which are just three of my favorite movies of all time. And they'd all been Paramount movies. So I was just, and also because I'm a huge Star Trek fanatic, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, oh my God, it's Paramount. So I just said yes. And he said, don't say yes, but let, let me tell you about the terms and everything else first. And I said, no, it's paramount. Let's just say yes. And he said, and he said let, let me talk to Leah about this. And so we talked to Leah, and then we, we, we agreed um, to let them option the book. And so um, my feeling is I am not going to be involved again 
uh, if they ask me to, I'll, I'll do everything that they need me to do. And but you know, I, I don't want to get because you know, I know the I know the old rule. The old rule is for every hundred books that get option, ten get turned into a script, and one gets turned into a movie. So I know that, and maybe I think this time I'm going to protect myself a little bit more and just let them do their thing, and, and I'll just keep focusing on my thing. Love it. My last question before we wrap up is, if you could choose any learning or insight from your career as a writer, what would you say to those aspiring novelists and authors out there? I totally would say this. Do not give up. I was completely on the verge of giving up. I 100% would have stopped writing for, my plan was to stop writing for at least two years. I have a feeling it would have been a lot longer. Um, I have a feeling that once I'd stopped for two years, it might have been three or four to get the juices flowing again. Um, so I would say when things are looking dark, I mean, I, we were literally evicted from our house. And things couldn't have looked more dark for me as a as an artist and someone as a dad trying to provide for my family. And I would say, look, hang in there as long as you possibly can. You know, there's a great philosopher and poet called Jennifer Hacked, and she has this wonderful phrase. And she says, like, just hang in there. Uh, you know, the, the the earth will turn in its ellipse, and spring will come, and crocuses will come up. And if you can just hang in there, um, maybe good things will happen and maybe you'll get lucky like me. Love it. Did you want to plug anything? Obviously, The Chain is on sale this Tuesday, tomorrow as of when this episode launches, July 9th. Anything else you want to shout out or plug? Life. If you like The Chain, yeah. then look for my other books. Um, there's, there's a couple out there. And uh, you probably won't be able to find them in the bookstores, but you can probably get them on Amazon places like that amazing well thank you man really uh, a pleasure to speak with you and hear about the chain and your process going into it a lot of craziness there there's so much more that i do want to find out but obviously we only have so much time so maybe we'll have you back on the future hey brilliant thank you guys so much for having me and i really love talking to you about it i really you know whenever i talk to other writers i am a total geek for finding out about their process and, and when they work, why they work, how they work, how much editing they do. I, you know, I, I love that stuff. It, that is right up my alley. So thank you so much for having me on. Do you want to just suggest one question we can ask our next guest before you go? Yeah. Do you like to do what? I'm completely fascinated by this answer. Do you like to work first thing in the morning or do you like to work, if you had to make a choice between first thing in the morning or late at night? What would you choose? If someone had a gun in your head, you could only work first thing in the morning or last thing at night. What would be your choice? Because I am completely fascinated by that answer. And you're uh, clearly a night writer because Shane made you write late at yes, night. Yes. I have tried to work in the mornings and it has always been disastrous. Um, for some reason, and I know most successful writers are morning writers. Lee Child is a morning writer, and Elroy is a morning writer, and um, J.K. Rowling, she's a morning writer. Most of the big successful writers you can think of do their work in the morning. But my God, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I cannot, cannot get it functioning before like one or two in the afternoon. So um, I'm completely fascinated by that question. Well, we will ask that to our next guest. Thank you again. We're so excited for the chain dropping tomorrow. 
good luck with everything and stay hey, in touch. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Adrian. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.